are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is David Guzik, and I'm very pleased that you could join me today on our Thursday live question and answer program. If we've never been introduced before, I'm a pastor, I'm a Bible teacher, and uh, perhaps a few of you might know me from the work that I have of an online Bible commentary. In fact, that's how I sort of reach the most amount of people with the work that I do in this world. It's with an online Bible commentary that's available at our website, EnduringWord.com. It's also available at Blue Letter Bible, that's blb.org. It's available on a wonderful app that's absolutely free and available for either your iPhone or your Android device. You can just go to the appropriate app store that you use and search for Enduring Word. And we also translate our Bible commentary into a lot of different languages. We just have a very simple passion to make God's Word clear, to make it understandable, to use it to benefit people, not only in answering their questions and giving the biblical knowledge, but in drawing them closer to a real relationship with Jesus Christ, with Jesus being their master and people being the obedient disciples of Jesus. So that's what we're all about. I do want to welcome our TWR360 audience, so pleased that you could join us today. We're very grateful for our partnership with TWR360. That's the online presence of the wonderful ministry of Trans World Radio, which for many decades has had an outstanding ministry over shortwave radio and continues to do that important work. But now, of course, they have an increasingly significant presence online with TWR360. Our normal pattern for a Thursday afternoon is to begin with a lead question, and uh, I'm going to start on that with just a moment. I do want to remind everybody that next Thursday, we will not have our live question and answer time. Next Thursday is a holiday in the United States, and uh, that's where I live. We'll be celebrating that holiday with uh, family and some friends. Uh, that's a holiday of thanksgiving, and it's a good holiday to have. It's always good to give thanks to God for the ways that he has blessed. So on to our lead question for today. The lead question is essentially this. What does the Bible say about women as worship leaders? And here's the question that comes from a viewer or reader, JLT, who asks this question. What is your view on women being assistant worship leaders under the main male worship leader. Second Chronicles chapter 25, verse 5 seems to indicate that there is a precedent in the Old Testament, and 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12 seems very specific about teaching and authority. Well, JLT, I'm happy to deal with your question. What you're really asking about is women assisting when it comes to to congregational worship, and what we mean is sort of the musical aspect of congregational worship. Look, we all recognize that God is worshiped uh, in many ways, not just in singing. Now, singing is an important way that God says that we should come and worship him, but it's not the only way. God is worshiped properly when we pray properly. 
God is worshipped in our hearing and meditating upon his word. God is worshipped in the fellowship of the saints when it's done unto his glory. So we're not trying to imply for a moment that singing songs as a congregation is the only way that we worship God, but it is an important way. And what your question, JLT, was really about was uh, women assisting when it comes to congregational worship. I suppose that could be with a woman keyboard player or a vocalist or whatever. But this is also relevant to another question of women leading worship in the sense of leading a team or simply being the only person before the congregation. If there was one woman before the congregation playing a keyboard or playing a guitar and leading the congregation in singing, um, would is that permitted by the Bible? What does the Bible say about such a thing? Now, I think that my answer to the bigger question, does the Bible permit a woman to be a worship leader, also answers your specific question, JLT, does the Bible permit a woman to assist a worship leader? Because obviously, according to the thinking, if we would think that it's biblically permissible for a woman to lead worship for a congregation, uh, then there shouldn't be any problem with her assisting a worship leader. So let me give you a quick answer and then get into some biblical explanation. The quick answer is just simply this. I don't think that the Bible says anything against a woman leading worship for a congregation. Because the Bible does not forbid it, I believe that the leaders of a congregation are free to welcome qualified, gifted women to serve in this way if they choose to. I'm going to talk a little bit more later about how that might work in an individual congregation with whatever leadership they have. But let me address this sort of question first, starting with a disclaimer. When I was a pastor over a congregation, and that's now a little bit more than five years ago since I turned over the ministry of the church where I was a pastor, Calvary Chapel of Santa Barbara, I turned that over to another gentleman, uh, our wonderful pastor, Pastor Tommy Schneider, and now he's been the pastor for more than five years. We still attend the congregation. I still teach there regularly. I just taught last night at the Wednesday night service. We're part of that congregation and part of the ministry of that congregation, but I'm not uh, the pastor or the leader of the congregation anymore. But when I was a pastor of the congregation, I was happy to welcome and to work with women worship leaders. And I believe that it was both scriptural and I believe it was blessed by God. Now, here are the passages referred to, and I want to take you to some of the passages that JLT mentioned in his question, or her question. I don't know if JLT's a man or a woman, but if I just refer to him generically as a man, I, forgive me if it's a woman instead. Here's the passages referred to by JLT. First of all, there's 1 Chronicles chapter 25, verse 5, where it says, All these were the sons of Haman, the king's seer, in the words of God, to exalt his horn, for God gave Haman 14 sons and three daughters. Now, later on, it's going to talk about how they were all involved in the worship ministry of Israel. So there is sort of this precedent, uh, these daughters of Haman, his three daughters, 
involved in the worship ministry. But, but that's not all. We have other passages as well. For example, Exodus chapter 15, verses 20 and 21, we see Miriam, the sister of Moses, and a prophetess leading worship. It says, then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dances, and Miriam answered them, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. Here we see in Exodus chapter 15, Miriam leading the women, but the sense is also of a broader congregational participation, essentially functioning as a music leader, a worship leader for Israel as a congregation. We also have similar, but not exactly the same sort of um, descriptions of Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 2 and Mary in Luke chapter 1 with their own songs of praise. Uh, Mary's song is quite famous. It's known as the Magnificent, uh, just taking from the first couple words in the Latin of uh, that passage, Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 46. So I would just say this. When you take uh, 1 Chronicles 25, when you take Exodus chapter 15, when you take the example of Hannah in 1 Samuel 2, when you take the example of Mary in Luke chapter 1, I would say that there are definite biblical examples of women leading in song and ministering in song. Now, is this enough to say that women can lead or assist in leading worship in Christian congregations today? I would say this, and I want to get back to something that JLT pointed out. JLT pointed out, uh, made the connection with 1 Timothy chapter 2, which in my understanding, and I'm certainly not alone with this, this has been the traditional understanding of this passage uh, throughout the centuries of the church, that God restricts the leadership of congregations, those positions of pastors and elders and how those positions would function, that those should be qualified men in the congregation. Friends, I, I just have to say that. I know this is a controversial issue in God's family today, but I, I have to be very direct with what I believe and what I believe the Bible teaches and what I believe pleases God in this. I believe that the Bible directs, in other words, God directs through his scriptures, that the leadership of a congregation, pastors and elders, should be qualified men. And I believe that the scripture says, I think 1 Corinthians 11 speaks of this. I think 1 Timothy chapter 2 speaks of this. I think the pattern of leadership in the Old Testament and the New Testament, it tells us that women can be and are marvelously used of God, that, that women and men together are partners in advancing the kingdom of God, but that God has restricted these positions of leadership in congregations, pastors and elders, to be of qualified men. Now, if you're curious in my thoughts on this in greater depth, you can check out the in-depth examinations of this in a couple of videos that I have on this channel. I'll put the links in the description later, but the two videos you want to check out are number one, my in-depth examination of 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15, that I call Men and Women in the Church. So if you just look for that on my channel, Men and Women in the Church, that'll be helpful to you. And then the second one I'd want you to check out 
is a video that I titled, A Word to Women Pastors. In other words, recognizing that this is a matter of controversy in God's church, and certainly not everybody agrees with me or with the historic Christian position on this, uh, what would I say to a woman pastor or a woman that was taking leadership in God's family that, that I felt that the Bible would say that she shouldn't take? And so I recommend those videos to you. Again, we'll put the links in the description. Now, I don't believe that the role of worship leading is necessarily a position of authority. It certainly could be. If that's what the congregation desired, or if the worship leader sort of seized leadership, by the way, that's something that either a man or a woman worship leader could do. Through my 40 years of ministry, I've dealt with a few worship leaders that I felt have overstepped their bounds and took too much authority or a leadership position that they shouldn't take. I look at the, the role of a worship leader fundamentally to be a servant to the congregation, to serve them in helping them to offer up praise and worship to God. There's a sense in which a worship leader should simply be the first worshiper, someone to simply model worship and then to direct the singing and manage whatever music is played. It has to do with song selection. It has to do with the keys and the tones and the rhythm. It has to do with the musical skill of the group together. But all of this should be done in submission to the pastors and the elders of the church. The women worship leaders that I have worked with over the years have been amazing examples of just wonderfully submitted cooperation, I think, just according to the biblical pattern. And I think that they've been anointed and used by God in beautiful and powerful ways. Now, is it possible for a worship leader to usurp their position and take authority that they shouldn't? Absolutely, it's possible. But you see, along these lines, I think that First Chronicles chapter 25, verse 6 gives us some guidance here. Here, the worship leaders served under the authority of someone else. Let's go back to 1 Chronicles chapter 25, and I want to read you verse 5, which we read before, and then go back and take a look at the following verse, verse 6. Check this out. 1 Chronicles chapter 25, verse 5. All these were the sons of Haman, the king's seer, in the words of God to exalt his horn, for God gave Haman 14 sons and three daughters. Now check out the next verse. All these were under the direction of their father for the music in the house of the Lord with cymbals, stringed instruments, and harps for the service of the house of God. Asaph, Jeduthun, and Haman were under the authority of the king. Did you catch that in there? Y yes, these were people assisting in the worship ministry. And even Haman, if you want to call him a worship leader, it was all done under the authority of the king. I think this is very important here. You see, in the very real sense, 
King David was the congregational leader of worship. And everybody who did it under him, whether it would be Asaph or Jedthun or Haman, they did it under the authority of the king. And I believe that it's an analogy. Of course, it's not exactly the same. A pastor isn't a king over a congregation, God forbid. But in a congregation, those who help lead the congregation in worship should do it under the authority of the pastor or elders, depending on how the church government is organized. It shouldn't be just something unto itself unless the congregation really felt that that's exactly how it should be in that particular case. Now, this is my conviction based on whatever pattern we have from the Word of God and very much based on the fact that we have nothing forbidding it in the Word of God. And I think that that's very important. I think that Jesus warned us about transgressing that is going beyond the commandment of God because of our traditions. He says that in Matthew chapter 15, verse 3. Jesus also warned us about those who lay aside the commandment of God in order to hold on to the tradition of men. We need to be very careful that we don't take, uh, what would you say? We don't take the traditions of men and elevate them to the commandments of God. Now, I, I will say this, that if an individual pastor or group of elders believed that for their congregation, that they shouldn't have a woman worship leader, then I wouldn't protest it. They have freedom in Christ to decide such things according to the leading of the Holy Spirit. What I would object to is someone sort of uh, authoritatively declaring that no congregation should have a woman worship leader. And if a congregation did, then uh, they were out of God's will and in sin. But if an individual congregation says, no, God has led us to do this or so, fine, let them do it. But they should not judge other congregations that may look at it differently because God gives no specific command regarding this. Again, we want to be very careful that we never, ever elevate the traditions of men up to being the level of a commandment of God. So, JLT, I hope that's helpful for you. I hope you see what I'm talking about here in regard to um, women worship leaders, people, women assisting the worship leader. I don't see any biblical prohibition to that whatsoever. And so I think under the wisdom and guidance of the Holy Spirit in individual congregations that they're free to decide one way or the other how God would lead them. Okay, that's it for that opening question. Let me go on to a question that comes from Tony, part of our TWR360 audience. Tony writes this, God promised Abraham and Isaac was born, Genesis chapter 21. Isaac prayed for his wife, was barren, and God answered, Genesis chapter 25. God found favor with the Virgin Mary, and thus she conceived through the Holy Spirit, and Jesus was born. Are these the only accounts in the Bible that God intervened by the power of the Holy Spirit to allow for pregnancy? 
Also, of these three, how significant was it that God answered Isaac's prayer? Tony, thank you for your question. So you're listing a few instances, the birth of uh, Isaac, the son of Abraham, uh, the birth of, I guess it would be um, Isaac's sons, Jacob and Esau. I don't know why I was forgetting that for a moment. And then you mentioned the birth of Jesus, of course, which was a separate case because that, that was done completely outside the normal means of conception of a child having to do with a miracle wrought in the womb of the Virgin Mary. But I can think, Tony, of at least a few other instances of what we might call miraculous conceptions in the Bible, um, where people were barren, they cried out to the Lord, and God gave them children. Uh, we think of Rachel, one of the, uh, one of the wives the first wife, the beloved wife of Jacob, uh, she was barren. She cried out to the Lord and she conceived. We think of Hannah in Judges chapter one and two. She was barren and she cried out to the Lord and she conceived. We think of Elizabeth, the wife of Zacharias and the mother of John the Baptist. She was barren and the angel Gabriel said that God has answered your prayers and she conceived. So I can think of at least three additional examples in the scriptures. I think what this kind of shows us is that in some measure, God is sovereign over the womb. Let me say that again. God is sovereign over the womb. And I want to say that in at least two specific ways that we should think of that. Number one, I think of the person, the woman, who has an unplanned pregnancy. Uh, maybe she's not married. Maybe the pregnancy has some connection to a sin or immorality. But let me tell you, God is sovereign over the womb, dear sister. And God wants life for that child of yours. I, I know you may regard it as an accident, and you might even at this moment regard it as an unfortunate accident, but it's no accident in God's plan. God is sovereign over the womb. And, and even if you're not excited or maybe not proud about uh, the, the circumstances under the conception of the child, the child itself is ordained by God and in God's plan. You need to, to desire the best and life and flourishing for that child, either raising it in your own home or maybe God would ordain you to be a blessing for someone else through adoption. So that's number one. But then there's another aspect to this as well. Um, someone not only places an unplanned pregnancy, but there's more than a few people in this world, couples who desperately wish to bear children, and they can't. A heart goes out to you. This is a great burden to bear in life a longing to bear children, but being unable to do so. And all, all I would simply say to you is, yes, seek whatever medical advice you can. Yes, do whatever you can to, to have children. Do, do everything that's wise and good. But at the end of it all, God is sovereign over the womb. And, and I know some people who have had glorious answers to prayer 
after crying out to God for years that they would be able to conceive a child. And, and I know other people who are dear, dear saints of God for whom those prayers were not answered. Both of them loved by God. Both of them having some purpose in God's plan. So I'll leave it that there for you there with uh, Tony. And thank you for our question for that question from our TWR 360 audience. Next question today comes from Adonias. Adonias asks, or Adonis, I'm sorry, Adonis. Um, is it possible to believe in amillennialism and believe that the tribulation of Matthew chapter 24, verse 20 is in our future? Um, Adonis, I suppose it's possible. Whether it's entirely consistent with the biblical data, with what the Bible tells us, that's another thing. But look, I, I've learned long ago, a lot of us have our inconsistencies. Some of them are somewhat harmless. Some of them are much more serious. But it's not unusual for people to hold on to some kind of inconsistencies in their belief. My kind of uh, question for that all-millennial um, brother or sister who would say that there is no literal, real reign of Jesus upon this earth, then I would just kind of be curious, what, what does the tribulation lead unto in their understanding? And they would probably say that it leads unto the glorious return of Jesus Christ, and I understand that, but, but I would just simply say this, is that um, it's hard to spiritualize so many of the passages that talk about the reign of Jesus and then not also spiritualize what the Bible says about the Great Tribulation and making it something that's really just symbolic in its nature. So Adonis, I, I think that there's no doubt some people that do that, uh, but maybe it's not a testimony to their consistency in biblical interpretation. All right, uh, next question is going to come from Lucho. Lucho asks, in the book of Esther, the law of the Persians, where did it come from? Was it from the law given to Moses? Lucho, um, no, not directly. Um, it was in some sense from God in this way, that God has written his law upon the conscience of humanity. Now, our conscience is not a reliable um, holder of God's law. Our conscience can be seared. Our conscience can be damaged. Our conscience can be dead. It, it can be twisted. So we just can't say that if a person acts according to conscience, they're always going to do what's right. But nevertheless, there is a truth that God has put a conscience within humanity. And to whatever... Uh, extent, the law of the Persians referred to in the book of Esther, to whatever extent that reflects the law of God, it's from that common ground of conscience that God has given to humanity. Again, we don't want to act as if it's a perfect revelation. It's not, but it is some sort of revelation from God. It's not that God's revelation is imperfect, no, but the way that we hold it, the way that we understand it, that is what's imperfect. 
But no, there is no real direct line between the um, law of Moses and that of the Persians later on in the book of Esther. Uh, not, Not to my knowledge, again, regarding the customs of the ancient Near East. If somebody knows more about than I and you want to leave a comment or something like that to help better instruct us, I am welcome to it. Next question comes from Horatio. Horatio says, uh, I've heard a lot of talk that Peter helped open the doors to the Jews, the Samaritans, and the Gentiles to a relationship to Christ. How true is this biblically? I don't see many references to this being actually the case. Okay, Horatio, let me explain to you this idea. And it comes to us from the book of Acts. First of all, uh, Peter opened the door of the new covenant, if you want to use that terminology. Salvation in Jesus Christ, God's Messiah. He opened those doors to the Jewish people in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. Then later... I want to say it's Acts chapter 9. I'm not going to bother looking it up just right now at the moment. It's when the gospel went out to the Samaritans, and I don't really remember. That's kind of when it registers in my mind. But it's when the gospel went to the Samaritans somewhere around Acts chapter 8, 9, or 10. Peter specifically went and preached to the Samaritans. Um, And when Peter did that, uh, he welcomed them into the kingdom. He, so to speak, offered the new covenant, sort of formally, if you want to say that, to the Samaritans. Then he did a very similar thing to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10, When God prompted a Roman centurion, a man known as a God-fearer, he respected the God of Israel without surrendering to every aspect of the Mosaic law. When God connected this God-fearing man, Cornelius, with Peter, and Peter preached the gospel to Cornelius' household, and the Holy Spirit fell upon them, and it was a way of receiving the Gentiles sort of formally into the kingdom. I think this was one outworking of, uh, if you want to say, having the keys given to Peter. You could say that Peter unlocked the door for the Jews to come into the church in Acts chapter 2. He unlocked the door for the Samaritans to come into the church, to the new covenant, and he unlocked the door of the Gentiles. Now, my dispute with uh, those from other Christian traditions, such as the Roman Catholic tradition, My dispute is not that Peter held the keys. My dispute is that he handed them on to anybody after him. I don't see any biblical evidence for that. But Horatio, I think it's pretty clear that God used Peter in a unique way to welcome Jews, Samaritans, and Gentiles all into the church, each one signified by a unique outpouring of the Holy Spirit in each individual case. You go to the next question, coming from Char, who asks, what does the Bible say about interracial marriage between believers? Char, let me tell you what the Bible says about interracial marriage between believers. Absolutely nothing. 
Nothing. It doesn't specifically uh, command it, but it certainly does not prohibit it. And the spirit of the New Testament, that idea of breaking down the walls that stood between uh, Greek and barbarian, slave and free, Jew and Gentile, the breaking down of those walls certainly points towards, implies that God sees absolutely nothing wrong with interracial marriage. We aren't given many specific examples of interracial marriage in the scriptures. One of them that seems very interesting is Moses's marriage to Zipporah, his wife. Um, There's indications that she was different racially, or at least in her complexion was much darker than uh, the average Israelite, if you want to say at that time. So again, there's a lot we don't know, so we want to be careful about, you know, being confident about things that we don't know, but we operate on a very definite principle. And that principle is simply this, that when the Bible does not forbid something, then generally speaking, there might be rare exceptions, but when the Bible does not forbid something, either specifically or in principle, then believers in Christ have freedom according to the leading of the Holy Spirit in each individual heart and life. So Christians should be absolutely I don't know, how could I say it? Almost bored by interracial marriage. It just shouldn't be an issue for them at all. Who cares? What what matters is if two believers come together, do they love one another? Are they both wonderfully committed to Jesus Christ? Are they interested in the advancement of his kingdom? And uh, if so, then they can go forward. And there's oftentimes something wonderful, something glorious in bringing together people from different backgrounds I've seen God do a lot of good with that. Um, I'll just leave it at that and go on to the next question from Alfredo. Alfredo asks, why don't Christian women wear head coverings when 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 4 through 7 explicitly command so? All right, Alfredo, thank you for the question. Very happy to deal with this question. Uh, I don't know if this answer is going to be to your liking, but I'll tell you, it's something that I believe very strongly on. By the way, a friend of mine, Mike Winger, who has a huge YouTube presence. Good heavens, we have a fraction of Mike Winger's subscribers and audience. But I'm very blessed that uh, such a good man and such a faithful teacher and student of God's word has such an influential audience. That's a wonderful thing. In the last week or so, Mike Winger released a video in his series on women in ministry, and it was a video about head coverings and the whole issue from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. That video is something like six hours, 45 minutes long, almost seven hours. I listened to the whole thing, and I'll tell you, I am in agreement with Mike Winger in his process and his conclusions on this. So, Alfredo, let me just explain this to you the best that I can. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 commands an order or a respect of authority in God's church. And as I explained before, I definitely believe that God has ordained, that God has instructed, that in two institutions, 
in the home and in the church, that there should be some form of male leadership. In the home, the husband should lead. Now, look, I know we can give all sorts of caveats. What if the husband's away? What if he's incapacitated? What if it's a single mom? We're just talking in general of a normative, if you want to say home, whatever that is. I, I know that there's some debate over what one is. But in, in a home with a husband, with a wife, with children, it's not that the wife has no authority. No, God forbid. But the Bible clearly says that the husband is her head. And certainly that has in mind a sense of leadership and authority among other things as well. In the church, God has instructed, he's commanded the leadership of qualified men, not just any man. The idea that an individual is qualified for leadership just because of their gender, just because they're men, that's nonsense. Most men in the church are not qualified for leadership, but God has ordained that the church be led by qualified men. Again, I'd refer people back who want to debate this point or, or take controversy. Go back to the videos that are going to be linked in the tales, videos I mentioned before uh, in our uh, video at the very beginning. Men and women in the church. You can look it up on this YouTube channel. And then a word to women pastors. You can look that one up as well. Okay, now, to your question here, uh, specifically, uh, adult Alfredo. God has commanded this respect of his order of authority in the church. In the Corinthian culture, and in many cultures, broadly speaking, at that time, the way that that respect for authority was shown was by the wearing of a head covering. That, that wasn't something just restricted to the church. A head covering illustrated, it, it, it proclaimed a respect of authority in all kinds of religious and in civic institutions of that time. Alfredo, here's the thing. It doesn't mean any of that in our Western culture today. When somebody sees a woman with a head covering, and to be clear, the head covering wasn't like a hijab. It wasn't like something that covered her face. It was something that would cover just sort of almost ceremonially the back of her head. When somebody sees that in today's culture, nobody thinks that's a woman under authority. In Corinth, in the first century, that's exactly what they thought. In, in Corinth in the first century, if you saw somebody who deliberately did not wear that covering, you'd say, oh, that's somebody who's not under authority. It doesn't mean that in today's culture. So, Afraidi, I would simply say this. The principle abides. The principle is not restricted to any culture, to any generation. It's for God's church throughout all ages, at least until the glorious return of Jesus Christ. That's the principle. The way the principle is expressed may be different from culture to culture, from place to place. The important thing is the principle. If you had a woman who was wearing some kind of head covering, as according to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and she was in the church fighting against the authority of the church, challenging the pastor and the elders on the doctrine, uh, being a big troublemaker in the church. If you had such a woman, nobody could say, well, it's cool, she's wearing a head covering. No, she's violating the principle of 1 Corinthians 11. 
what she puts on her head is sort of irrelevant at that matter. Now, let me say this as well. Let me give you, Alfredo, an illustration of this. The instructions for head coverings are clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 based on the principle that I spoke to you about before. But really, it's only spoken about there in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I don't say that to discount it. I think it's very clear there in 1 Corinthians 11. But I'm just trying to emphasize it's really spoken about one place in the New Testament. In at least four places in the New Testament, we're told to greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, Alfredo, I don't know what the practice is in your congregation, in the church you attend or the church you lead, but I'm going to suspect that it's not like a command for the people in your congregation, home Bible study, church, whatever it is. I suspect that it's not a command that they must greet one another with a kiss. Why? because you understand the principle behind greet one another with a holy kiss. You understand that it's not the kiss that's the issue. The issue is greet one another warmly in the name of Jesus. Well, that's what we're supposed to do. So not all cultures express that through a kiss. Sometimes they do it through a warm handshake. I would bring that same analogy towards the head. The principle remains the same. We don't abandon the principle. No, God makes it very clear. But how the principle is expressed may differ from culture to culture. So, Alfredo, I hope that's a clear enough answer for you there um, and and explains uh, my understanding there. Look, if if you really want to go through, listen to Mike Wingers. Easy to find his YouTube channel. Search for his name or Bible Thinker on YouTube. You'll find it easily. Look up that six-hour, 45-minute, and he's got it time-stamped, so if you just want to skip to individual parts, it's very easy to do, but I I would recommend that you do that. Okay, next question comes from Philip. Philip asks this, have spiritual gifts, tongues, prophecy, etc., been historically active in the church? It seems as if gifts have been a fairly new-slash-renewed focus of the church. Philip, this is a great question and something that I have some interest in uh, and something I would really like to do. You know, if you only knew how many things that are on my mind, I need to do a video about this. I need to do a video about that. I got a big list in my head. In addition to wanting to teach through certain books of the Bible for the YouTube channel. Anyway, it's, it's a lot to do. I got a lot to think about right now. But Philip, here's the issue. When you read the writings of Christians in the second century and in the third century, they did not say miracles have ceased. They did not say miracles died with the apostles. They did not say the gifts of the Spirit passed away when the apostles passed away. They didn't say that. They said that the gifts of the Spirit are still resident within the church. It was only until about the 4th century, in response to some heretical groups, some way-out groups that promoted the gifts of the Spirit, that the church began to distance themselves from the gifts of the Spirit and say that they were not for today, but that they died out for the apostles. So, 
you just don't find that argument. And again, I, but I've written some work on this. Um, it's really something that I need to do a YouTube video about. But th this is clear from Christian writers in the first century, obviously, that's biblical times, but in the second century and in the third century, it's not until the fourth century that you start getting this line because the gifts of the Spirit begin to be associated with crazy people. And everybody just wants to distance himself from the crazy people. Now, from the fourth century to maybe the 17th, 18th century, I'm thinking of the Irvingites that came up later. There's not much. There's evidence and there's talk about miracles and such. Not so much about the gifts of the Spirit. But it wasn't recognized that way in the first few centuries of the church. So, ultimately, for us, Philip, the historical evidence is interesting and it has a role to play. But for us, the really compelling evidence has to be biblical. Does the Bible say that the gifts of the Spirit are for today? And uh, this is something that I think is important to think about. Um, anyway, Philip, thank you for that question. And I hope to do more work on that, maybe put out a video on that sometime in the next few months. Bandy asks this question. How do I organize a family Bible study? Any Bible study material and sources recommended apart from enduring word? Oh, Bandy, I think that you can... See, it's a little bit hard to answer your question because I don't know what ages of children that you're dealing with. If it's younger children, there's just some great Bible storybook kind of things. Uh, you know, one that my wife had read to her when she was a child and we used with our own children. It was called Little Visits with God. And it would just tell a story and give a biblical principle and an application of it. There's a lot of resources out there like that. And I think just simply dependent upon the ages of your children. As your children get older, I think you could just do straight Bible readings. Especially if you're using a simpler translation of the Bible to understand. Something maybe like the New Living Translation in English. Uh, and there's sort of equivalence to that in other languages as well. So, I do believe that um, it's important just to get into a routine, to get your family thinking about talking about the scriptures and how it's done and what specific resources you do use really are dependent upon the ages of the children. Younger children, it's fine to use some kind of storybook or something like that. As the children get older, it comes to a place where you can just read straight from the Bible and say, hey, let me just read to you this couple paragraphs and you can tell me what you think and we can talk about it here together. All right. Thank you, Bondi. Bless you for wanting to bless your family in that way. God bless you. Okay, next question comes from uh, Caroline, who asks this. Romans chapter 2, verse 25 to Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. Please explain what Paul was trying to point out. Okay, Caroline, what, what we're dealing with here in Romans, chapters 1, 2, and 3, that Paul is basically addressing three groups of people. And he wants these three groups of people to know that they need Jesus. 
that they can't save themselves, that they need to look outside of themselves and they need to look unto Jesus for their salvation. And when I say salvation, I mean being brought into a right standing with God. Okay, so who are those three groups of people? Well, first he addressed the pagan, just sort of the immoral pagan. Paul talks about them. Then secondly, he addressed what we would call the moralist. This is the person, well, I'm not a pagan. I have some high moral standards. Paul points out even you need Jesus because you don't live up to your own morality. And then thirdly, he deals with the religious person, specifically the Jewish person, because Paul would be dealing with people from that particular background. So in dealing with the pagan, the moralist, and the religious person or the Jew, Paul is dealing with humanity in its entirety. Now, as you're asking here in Romans chapter 2, verse 25, again, looking quickly here, Romans 2, 25, there he's addressing his comments to the religious person, to the Jewish person. Romans 2.25 begins like this, for circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law, but if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Again, he's just continuing on the argument to tell everybody they need Jesus. The pagan, the moralist, and the religious person, all the way coming up to verse nine through verse 20, he gives this sort of conclusion saying, everybody needs Jesus. We're all fallen. We're all broken. We all need Jesus. As he concludes here, I'm going to read you uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 20, where it says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So again, in the broader context of Romans there, he's speaking to the pagan, the moralist, and the Jew. The section you're asking about, he's specifically focusing on the religious person, and in that context, it would be the Jewish person. Hope that helps you there, Caroline. Thank you for your question. Next question comes from Jennifer, who asks, Do you think the rapture is mentioned at all in the Old Testament? or as a mystery revealed only in Paul's letters. Jennifer, I think that there is a reference to the rapture in Isaiah. And I am very sorry, I cannot think of the chapter and verse. But in Isaiah, there's a passage where God says prophetically to his people, come away while I hide you. I'm paraphrasing, of course, because I can't remember the chapter and verse or the exact wordings. You know, be secure in my place until I pour out judgment upon the earth. And I think that that prophetically is sort of a reference to what we call the catching away of the church. I, I don't know if rapture is the best term, but clearly 1 Thessalonians describes this catching away of the church. Uh, some people call it from based on the Greek word used, the harpazo, whatever. But but it's this catching away of the church. I, I do find some reference to it in Isaiah, where it talks about being uh, taken away and hidden in God's pavilion until judgment would pass. Um, for the most part, this was a detail about an aspect of Jesus's second coming that was not detailed in the Old Testament. 
Remember, in the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, there is oftentimes not a clear distinction between that which he would do at his first coming and that which he would do at his second coming. And this sometimes was a source of confusion to certain Jewish teachers or rabbis. Sometimes, at least on some occasions, they would even speak about sort of two messiahs. The the messiah who was a son of Joseph, that was a suffering messiah because of how much Joseph suffered. And then a messiah who was the son of David, David being this great triumphant king. It was somewhat hard for them to reconcile how there's some passages of the Old Testament that speak of the Messiah suffering and other passages that speak of his glory and dominion. Well, we understand now on this side of the cross, the prophecies of suffering were fulfilled in his first coming. The prophecies of glory will be fulfilled in his second coming. And we're sort of in that in-between age right now where we would hope that the glory is increasing as God's work continues on in this world. But that specific detail about the catching away of the church as an aspect of his second coming, I don't find it detailed much except for that one passage in Isaiah that I can't remember the chapter or verse. Maybe one of our clever uh, viewers has that in mind. All right, let me uh, go on to the next question from Andromeda, who asks, Do you believe in dispensational or covenant theology? I'm very confused about these doctrines. Oh, Andromeda. Maybe you've heard me talk here on today's broadcast about videos that I want to make. Yeah, I really, really want to make one on the gifts of the Spirit in early church history. But I also really, really want to make a video on dispensational theology, and covenant theology. Andromeda, from what I understand, I'm doing my reading. Matter of fact, right here on my desk is a book, The Christ of the Covenants by O. Palmer Robinson. Uh, Not too long ago, I read another book that was recommended to me as a book on covenant theology, God to Us, Covenant Theology and Scripture. Andromeda, let me just say, from my reading thus far, I want to do some more reading, I want to do some more research, but thus far, I think covenant theology is a mess. The the idea that all of God's work can be understood in terms of a covenant of works and a covenant of grace, and these covenants are nowhere described in the scriptures with any kind of clarity or specificity. Nowhere. It's just not in the Bible. Covenant theology is a creation of overactive, systematic theology and a neglect of biblical theology. That's how I see it now at the moment. They, they're trying to hang an enormous weight on a very small nail that they pounded into the wall. Think about somebody putting a very thin nail into a wall, and the wall's made of drywall, it's not even made of stone. They put a very thin nail into a wall, and then they try to hang a piano from that weight. The the supposed biblical foundations for a formal covenant of works and a formal covenant of grace 
that God organizes his entire work on, and, and should be understood, it's just not there. It's just not there. When I read the Bible, I do see a covenant that God made with Abraham. Very clear. A covenant God made with Noah before that. But let's begin. There's very clearly a covenant that God made with Abraham. Very clearly a covenant that God made with Moses and the people of Israel. Very clearly a covenant that he made with, uh, with David. Very clearly a new covenant. But this overarching covenantal idea of this covenant of works and covenant of grace, that, that, that great weight should be placed upon. Great weight so much that in some Christian traditions, that is the entire basis on which they baptize babies. And there's just no biblical evidence for it. Okay, I think you can see I get kind of worked up about this. But Andromeda, I would just simply say that I'm doing reading. I want to do some more reading. Eventually, I want to make a, a video. But to this point, I am completely unpersuaded about the arguments for covenant theology, at least as I've been understanding this overarching covenant of a covenant of works and a covenant of grace. I just don't see it in the scriptures. Now, as for dispensationalism, dispensationalism has definitely had its problems. I don't buy into a, for a moment, these seven rigid dispensations with the rules that God relating to man being all different between them. No, here's my dispensationalism. Ready? There's a difference between Israel and the church. That's what it boils down to. That Israel is not the church and the church is not Israel. There's a difference between the two. Here's another aspect of my dispensationalism. The new covenant is really new. That's another thing that sort of drives me a little bit crazy about covenant theology, at least as I've read it so far. They, they, they seem to work over time to try to eliminate anything new about the new covenant. So that's my dispensationalism. I believe that there's a difference between the church and Israel, and I believe that there's something genuinely and profoundly new about the new covenant. And I, I think that the formulations, the categories, the, the, the fundamental ways of understanding these things presented by covenantal theology, it's just not there in the scriptures. All right, let me go on to the next few questions. Uh, my God is an oath asks, is going to church a form of discipleship to bring others to Lord Yeshua. Um, my God is an oath. Let me just simply answer that by saying, yes, it is. Going to church is a form of discipleship. It's not the only form of discipleship, but it is a form of discipleship. And um, in a healthy church, with the right sort of things in place, it's a glorious testimony to what God is doing in the world. So I would just give a very simple and a categorical yes to your question there. All right, everybody, that's the last question that we've had here for today. I want to thank everybody for joining me. And I want to make you a reminder here. Next Thursday in the United States, and that's where I do this from, is a holiday. We will not have a question and answer program next Thursday. We're going to take a week off. I'm going to give my moderator, Devin. Devin, enjoy your Thanksgiving with your family. 
I'll give Andrea, uh, our executive, whatever, director, what, whatever title she has. She makes everything run around here with Enduring Word. You take the day off too, Andrea. We're just going to enjoy and give thanks to the Lord that day. I hope you do as well. But in two weeks, I hope to join you right here uh, again, and I'll be looking forward to it. So thank you for joining us today. And if we didn't get to your question, please don't despair. Uh, please try to get in earlier next time. Uh, or you can try to send the question to us other ways. Maybe we'll make it a lead question sometime. But we're just very pleased that you could join us today and wish all God's best to you. God bless you. And we hope to see you again soon. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.